today I have Bob Arnold. Quick bio. Bob has spent his career building and scaling companies in the technology space and across various verticals, including manufacturing industries as well. Some of these experiences include Genesis Electronics, Mincron, Axoon, Convergence Technology, and i3 Mobile. With multiple exits and IPOs under his belt, his wealth of experience as a founder, executive, advisor, and entrepreneur puts him at the very nexus in other words, at the intersection between business and technology. So welcome, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Ilani. So I just want to catch up with you. You know, what's currently going on? I know there's a lot of things. I mean, you're one of the busiest people I've known. Sure. Um, well, thanks for the introduction. I am pretty well consumed. I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way, six days a week. It probably should be seven, but it's six days a week I'm consumed with uh, Did You Remember To and our product attendant. Uh, it's a startup, my probably my fifth or sixth startup. Um, and uh, our product is uh, a combination of Bluetooth Low Energy Beacon and mobile app for just-in-time reminders, notices, and security alerts. So it is uh, from what we understand from the engineers at the manufacturer, EM Microelectronics, uh, division of Swatch, that no one else in the world is using a Bluetooth low energy beacon as we are. Uh, so it's exciting in that respect. Uh, it is unique in the world. We do have two patents on the core of our technology. Uh, it's IoT type technology. So uh, that's what's going on. That's the busiest part, uh, but I am on a couple of boards and uh, fulfilling my obligations to those boards every month. I've always wanted to ask, what is it like going through an IPO process? I know it's brutal, and you've been through that, and I'm, I mm. just want you to share your experience just going through from soup to nuts. I mean, it has to be an intense experience. You know, um, I'll tell you, Lonnie, that uh, it's been a while since it did the IPO. So as with all interesting things, they kind of get muted over time. So I don't remember so much of the intensity of it, but I do remember of the, let's say, the workload involved with uh, preparing for selecting the bankers. Um, I have some interesting stories about selecting the bankers, the quiet period, uh, and then the excitement actually of the IPO itself and, and watching the stock uh, price take off and realizing you're worth millions and then multiple millions of dollars, at least as far as the market is concerned, for some period of time. Um, if <laughs> one, one of the interesting stories was, and the moral, there's a moral to this particular one, uh, know where your mute button is on your uh, microphone. Uh, we took it with one set of bankers who I won't use the name of, um, we had probably eight to 12 people, our, our lawyers, accountants, uh, our uh, operating, some of our operating people in the room. And uh, on the other end, and, and some of this bankers people in the room as well. But on the other end of the speakerphone, one of those uh, tripod things in the middle of the conference room, uh, conference table, was their Chicago office. And there were three people there. And so we, after probably 45 minutes or so, an hour, uh, somebody called for a break. So we said, all right, let's take a break. Thinking that their mic was on mute in Chicago, we listened in as they said, oh, man, we don't have a chance with these guys. <laughs> and, and they went on from wow. there. It was like one of those memorable moments. So uh, for your listeners the moral of that particular story is always make sure that you know when the mic is off. That's very interesting because, you know, everybody, there's an old saying, you know, uh, everybody goes to, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? <laughs> okay. and, and I think the, the morale of that is, you know, the actions we take, can have unintended consequences, right? And we always have to be cognizant, 
you know, um, of our behaviors. Now, do you think much has changed, you know, given current um, trends with IPOs and companies prematurely going public or raising funds at, you know, just insane valuations? Well, in today's in today's marketplace, it's it's big dollars chasing the big deals. There's um, there's not a lot of the middle market. Um, you know, there's activity, but um, there's there's nothing at the smaller end. If you're not trying to raise five to ten million at least, uh, brokerage firms are not interested. Uh, we've got a system where um, they're not interested, but they don't want to give up control. The brokerage firms don't through the SEC. They don't want to give up control of the marketplace. So instead of allowing um, the market to act more freely at the smaller level, the SEC is continues to uh, restrict the um, finders and um, not many brokers, but finders basically from operating to help people, uh, entrepreneurs raise raise funds. So there's a kind of a gray market that's occurred at that level. Um, I think that there are way more uh, of the large deals that you read about in the paper um, as compared to the uh, mid, mid-range mid deals that used to go on. And I'm not an expert by any means in that whole area because my whole focus is on starting companies and bringing them up and then selling them or bring them to an IPO as it did. Um, so when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, all your effort is going into how do I build the business? Um, I'm not watching what the rest of the world is doing so much. You can't, you can't live in a vacuum, but it's pretty distracting. If you think, Oh, I can't raise money because the market is down. Well, you just, you know, you're just shooting yourself in the head because you've taken a negative approach. And uh, some of the best money is raised uh, between uh, the, the Christmas and New Year's, uh, meaning if you can find somebody that's in the office, you got an opportunity to talk with them and try and start to put a deal together. Um, and so never. That's that's yeah. that's. That's very curious because do you do you then think entrepreneurship is for everyone? Because I think nowadays everywhere you turn, everybody is starting something. Everyone is an entrepreneur. Everyone has a startup. Everyone has something to well, pitch. Maybe in our world, Alani, uh, we see a lot more of that. I do, um, but uh, a comment on entrepreneurs. Uh, You've got government trying to create entrepreneurs. They have entrepreneurial centers and incubators and all these great things. Um, the problem with that is that you can't train somebody to be an entrepreneur. You can't. It, it's it's either in their DNA and it's not really DNA, of course, but it's in their personality They've they've got to have that stick to itness in the in the in the face of all adversity. Um, that's what it takes, and you can't train somebody to do that. They either got the guts to do it or not. They've either figured out how to sleep at night, knowing that they've got a small payroll to meet and have no money in the bank. Um, you know that's that's what it takes. So. When you hear about the incubators and, uh, you know, the states in, in many ways trying to help by creating entrepreneurs, they're just, for the most part, <laughs> they're setting people up for failure because they don't have the what it takes to do it. There's a very small percentage of them of true of entrepreneurs that are actually true entrepreneurs. That's that's actually a valuable insight. So I'm going to Go pivot very briefly. And and that is, you know, for what in your life do you feel the most grateful? Mm. Well, that's a tough one. Um, I'm a very positive person. 
So I, um, I, I think most grateful is, is my family. I'm a family man and, uh, my wife and my two adopted kids, um, you know, that has been what I would consider my most, uh, I'm most grateful for, for that opportunity. And I'll tell you quite frankly, I had to make that happen as far as adopting the kids is concerned. Um, uh, so it was sort of my entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, that didn't give up. We tried several times and uh, finally came upon the right situation and I made it happen. Um, so I'm most grateful for the, my wife and the kids. So no business in there at all, huh? No, I was expecting a few deals. Nope. <laughs> no. That's uh, awesome. Not on the same level. Yes, I think everything we do ties back to family, right? Because who do you share successes with? Mm -hmm. Family. Who do you lean on in the face of challenges and failure? Family, right? And who do we learn from? Family. So there's a grounding effect having family. And that's something I believe we should eternally be grateful for. I might take a little exception with part of what you just said. Um, I, yes, in, in the past have leaned on family because when you're starting a business, sometimes, uh, as in our, my case, my wife was the breadwinner for a while as you started the business. So yes, that's leaning on family. But what I don't do is I don't, I don't bring home or share if you will, all of the concerns and issues uh, that I have, because that, you know, opposites attract. So um, my my wife would not want to hear all the things that I have in my head as issues that I need to solve. Uh, so I don't lean on her in that manner. Um, so that, that would be my sort of exception to that. Um, Overall, she knows what I do and what it takes and is is interested in it, in the businesses that I'm developed, that I've developed um, and likes participating in the success, uh, the, su the, su the success uh, aspects of it. But I don't share uh, on any sort of regular basis all the problems and issues that I need to face and I just, I take that on myself. Well, that's, that, that, that's, that's also insightful. You know, I've, I've always been curious on the concept of, you know, whether it's governments or institutions, you know, the concept of socializing the costs while privatizing the gains, because we see some industries where the value accrues to a few Right. We look at centralized systems, you know, like, say, social media, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and search, where all these companies create freemium platforms like, you know, Facebook, Instagram and what have you, where people contribute. But socializing the cost of collecting all that data is one thing, but monetizing that data, basically the gains from it is not equitable where it goes. Now, on one hand, you know, yes, the entrepreneurs who took the risks, you know, all the risks and to build the system and make it available, that's one case for it. But on the other hand, at what point do we start crossing that gray area, you know, where is the accrual of value so heavily concentrated that it eventually creates an oligarchy where the government is forced to, quote unquote, intervene and start trying to, going back to your earlier point, train and manufacture entrepreneurs in an effort to force equitable redistribution of some sort. I wanted your insight on that. Well, you know, I, I think what uh, you need to think about, Alani, is the um, history. Uh, if, you've, uh, if you know Ron Chernow as an author, um, he did uh, The Titan, and it, it's interesting to think back 120 years or 140 years ago to 100 and 
hundred years ago or so when uh, Rockefeller senior uh, was building his business and what at, in that same time frame when unions were starting up in the 1890s uh, and onward um, big business needs big government needs big unions to balance off the days where you know um, I mean it's it's that's where the balance is. That's that's why we need big government, if you will, to have the power to break up AT and T and create so much more. If you recall, in '83, the breakup of uh, the Bell system, which has spun off so much more in terms of technology and lower prices for calls. If you remember, you're not that old, but if you remember back that far. In some way, you know, it was uh, a quarter to make a local phone call. And uh, what do you pay uh, to make a local phone call on your mobile phone now? A a one hundredth of a cent maybe in your bill? I don't know. Definitely. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's uh, if you look at history, you can see where we came from. We're heading that direction again in the sense uh, in the last 10 or 15 years with these social media platforms and, and Amazon. Uh, our company deals with Amazon and people are very comfortable buying from Amazon, but it is a behemoth. It's very difficult to work with as a seller. It's um, They have uh, lots of tools and things. It was very complex, and um, you just you have to do things the way they want it. Uh, you know, <laughs> so that's funny. That's funny because people don't realize that about fifteen percent of every dollar spent goes to three companies: Amazon, Google, or Microsoft to their cloud hosting. People don't realize that when the when the price of hosting cloud services goes up, it rolls down to yeah. commodities and regular items we buy. For yeah. example, mm-hmm. okay, McDonald's or some other bigger companies host their platforms and their supply chain management systems on one of these three cloud computing behemoths. So when this behemoth ups their cloud infrastructure pricing, what happens? The order management system, if it filters out, suddenly that burger goes up five cents. So it's not, so right. to your earlier point, you have you need big business and large institutions of states to coexist because they need each other. That's where the balance comes from. We, 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 ho- we hope it doesn't always work that way and it takes, takes, decades sometimes for it to come about we're heading towards the point where there's more and more talk about breaking amazon up um you know are we going to get our health care from amazon just because they've been so successful in delivering consumer goods are we you know where where does it stop where where do we and it it is it is better when you have more companies competing to provide the products and the services. Um, it, it's, it's just more, it's just better to have things that way, but it takes a lot as it did back in 83. It took decades to build up to the point where the government could step in and break up AT&T. I think we're headed that way in this decade maybe later on this decade something's going to happen with uh, Amazon and maybe Microsoft um, maybe Apple I mean as, as they get into other things into cars right uh, it's they get into these things because they've got you know 50 to 100 billion in cash sitting on the shelf and they got to figure out something to do with it I could tell them what to do with it but they won't listen to me We've done a few deals together and, you know, I, I've always wondered when it comes to deploying capital at scale, you know, should investors deploy capital into R&D entities 
in the hopes of a return downstream or runway ready companies that have a very obvious key value proposition and a team that can execute. Well, that's not exactly a question, but the, the description of that is that is what probably 90 some odd percent of investors who invest in private companies are looking for is uh, something that's on the ramp, uh, ready to, to take those dollars and go and sell a lot of uh, product or service, um, not to do R&D. Maybe 10% of uh, private investors are uh, of the mindset that they're willing to see R&D go on and, and wait for their uh, return, a somewhat longer uh, trail to get to that return. There's an exception there, which is the um, uh, healthcare field. Um, because of the FDA, it takes years often to get uh, products approved, and investors in that field are in that 10%. They're ready to risk capital on what can be very huge returns um, and have to wait for it. Uh, my company, Did You Remember To, you know, we're, we're at the start of that ramp up now. We're looking for a million dollars in capital that'll basically take us on to the next level. We don't need to do any more R&D. It's all done and in place. So I can see the difference when I'm walking around with my handout looking for funds between investor types. Some, it's just, they don't have the risk profile of, <laughs> we don't have the risk profile that they can deal with. Um, it goes back to, you know, the same thing with the entrepreneurs. Some, lots of people might say they're entrepreneurs, but if they don't have the risk profile, they're really not an entrepreneur. They can't handle it. So most 90% of the uh, private investors can't handle any earlier stage investment uh, opportunities. What I've, what I've proposed to congressmen, our congressman here, Jim Himes, is that um, it really would help if the federal government would do something like the states do. I think there's something like 17 or 19 states offer a 20, uh, 20 to 25% investor tax credit. So uh, an investor puts money into a company uh, the state provides a tax credit, not a deduction, but a credit of 25% of what's been put in. So $100,000 investment gets the investor $25,000 of tax savings in their state. And, um, some of the states actually allow you, like Connecticut allows you to uh, sell that. So you can transfer it and sell it. So I've had investors from out of state put in... Uh, one recently, $50,000, and uh, I was able to sell his $12,500 tax credit for $10,000 to a local business guy so he could use it for his taxes. So if the federal government would do the same thing, the, the risk profile of any smaller investment would really be dramatically improved. If you think about the, the metrics of uh, say a hundred thousand dollar invest, a hundred thousand dollar investment. You get twenty five thousand dollars back right away from the state. If you were to get another twenty five back from the federal government in terms of uh, taxes over the next five years, now you only have fifty thousand at risk. And if the company goes belly up, and um, you have to write the whole thing off. Uh, you're writing a hundred thousand off, which at most investors' tax bracket means uh, they're saving thirty-five thousand, maybe. So maybe on a hundred thousand dollar investment, you've got a net of fifteen thousand dollars you're going to lose if everything goes to hell in a handbasket, and your upside is not at all restricted. Now, so that's, that's my little commercial about you know I I think the federal government. And what it does, Alani, is it, it eliminates lots of middlemen because most inv uh, investors and entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs know people who are potential investors. If you can get an investor to easily understand that 
for a $15,000 risk, they get $100,000 worth of stock and, and the 100,000 times X as your upside. That makes a big difference. Yeah, now, now that's, that's smart investing, actually. Now, if I may pivot, you know, if you could change Again, anything about the way you were raised, what would it be? <laughs> Nothing. I think my parents did a great job, don't you? <laughs> well, it depends. Okay. I thought this was... Uh... Yeah, because, I mean, you know, everyone has, a, you know, a background and different idiosyncrasies. And I've always believed that everything that I experience via my parents, right, wrong, or indifferent, however, however perceived at the time, mm -hmm. is what led me here. And for yeah. that, I will eternally be grateful. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, family is interesting. So now that being said, you know, what do you value most in a friendship? Honesty, um, reliability. I, I measure, uh, um, <laughs> I have an oddball way of measuring uh, who's a real friend. Um, my, my real, my real friends can, uh, come into my house essentially without knocking. Hey, I'm here. They can go to my refrigerator and pull out a beer. I can do the same in their place. That's how you tell a real friend, a close friend, a real friend. If, if they can't do that or you can't do that at their place, you know, you're, you might be friendly you might be good acquaintances, but, you know, you're not really best of friends. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. I see a lot of people who confuse friendships and acquaintances. You know, they go around, you know, I've got three, yeah. four hundred people who know me. But I'd rather have three friends, you know, than three thousand acquaintances who at best, yeah. you know, sure. our arm's distance. It's interesting. So what's your most treasured memory? From just period, right? From day one to now. Correct. Well, that's hard. That's, that's a real, that's a hard one, Alani. <laughs> What's the most treasured memory? You know, actually, um, uh, I will tell it. I'll tell you a tiny, short story. My most treasured memory I can still picture is when my mother jumped up from the table on the porch and said, "My prayers have been answered." I had just returned from uh, four or five weeks. No, it wasn't even that long, uh, probably four weeks. I hitchhiked to California when I was 18 by myself. And uh, so they had no idea when I was getting back. This was in the days when there was no, uh, this was 65, I guess. And um, so no cell phones, obviously. I think I called them once collect from California to let them know I was still alive. And um, I hitchhiked right back to home, had to walk up my block, I think. And uh, they, my father and mother and, and my younger sister were sitting there having dinner on the porch when I opened the door. And that was my mother's reaction. So treasured memory. There you go. Answered prayers. Are... So, wow, that must have been intense. Hitchhiking to California in 65. Yeah. You know, it's very, very, you know, that's an achievement. I mean, it's, it's wow. Now, that being said, you know, and I've been to your house a few times, and I one of the things I recall when it stuck with me is you have a painting on the wall of a U.S. president. And he actually sat for that painting. Wilson, yep. 
Woodrow Wilson. You know, how does it feel? I mean, it's such a critical part of this country's history to have that presence because there's a, I, I believe certain things carry certain weight to them. Mm-hmm. You know, how, I mean, what do you, you know, over, you know, since, I don't know how, I know you've had it there for a while, you know, when you talk about that to people who may have, you know, very little concept, you know, of one history, because I know you're a voracious reader and you know a thing or two, <laughs> because I, you know, I learned a lot from you quite a bit. You know, how does it feel having that there? What does it remind you of every time you take a moment to regard it? Well, it does, it does make me think in terms of history. Um, Wilson has talked about in, the, in uh, Charnel's book in terms of uh, the, the Titan. Uh, also talked about in um, several, well, several other books. I, I have not read a book uh, specifically on Wilson, but I guess it, it, because of the way it came to us, brings me back to uh, the family history in a sense. It was my wife's grandmother who had lent money to the artist who painted that picture when Wilson was in New York for the League of Nations, I think it was, in the 20s, uh, early 20s. And he sat for, in those days, you know, he sat for this painting for an hour or two. Um, I think he was, he might have been president at the time. He probably was president still at the time. And um, so she had it and she wasn't able to pay my wife's grandmother back. And uh, the artist offered that as as uh, compensation to wipe out the debt. So we, we ended up getting the picture into the family in a kind of an odd way. Um, so it does, it brings him back to history in a few different ways. That's, that's it's interesting that's that you remember that too. <laughs> no, there's certain things, you know, I am a student of history myself and whenever I am, you know, privileged to encounter pieces of history, those things make me think, it reminds me of where I am. It reminds me of the company I keep, the company I am with. And it also, it humbles you. It makes you appreciate in a sense, because I believe in fate. Mm-hmm. I think fate leads us to certain things and to be in the company and in the, pre- just being in that place at that time experience and having that experience you know those things stay with me that's why i brought it up now i'm gonna pivot you know what's your most terrible memory (laughs) hmm terrible memory well i have i i guess i have a few in a sense uh terrible um i i i have i have a few that were just bad things that happened not necessarily to me um uh, we had one occasion uh i was at sea with five other guys we were north of bermuda and uh the mast on our boat came down so that was kind of scary for a while. We got rescued by a container ship. Um, so a terrible memory. Maybe that's a terrible memory. Maybe not. It was, it was uh, enlightening in many different ways. Um, uh, scary. I found a dead body once. Um, that was That was, you know... I'm going to say that was the most terrifying. I was riding a motorcycle uh, kind of through the woods off of a road. And I, I can't, I couldn't even tell you because your mind blocks these things out. I couldn't tell you whether it was male or female. Uh, turned out to be a, a young woman. Um, but I, I 
I saw it and I just was horrified, turned around, went back out to the road, made an X on this country road by skidding my tires and then went and called the cops. And uh, so terrifying, since I had nothing to do with it, I wasn't really terrified, but I did spend the night, you know, the person that finds a dead body is the one they point the finger at first. So I spent the night uh, being interviewed and it's never locked up or accused of anything, but I spent the night being interviewed and um, uh, they finally, uh, they finally realized, you know, it couldn't have been me, you know, not right. Uh, but they did make me take a lie detector test the next day. And as the uh, police officer who uh, drove me home from the, uh, the lie detector place, um, I said to him, well, you know, are they going to tell me how did I do? I mean, come on. He says, let me put it to you this way. I would not be driving you home if you didn't pass the test. Enough said. <laughs> At that point, I would just keep quiet, get home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, yeah. Wow. You know, I had a similar experience, actually, in New Haven, Connecticut, where, you know, wow. it was a Saturday morning. I was walking along the pier and it was in the river there and oh. the body was there. And I had called the cops when they came to, you know, clear, clear the scene. The first question the officer asked me was, did you touch the body or attempt to rescue? And I'm going, the body is 50 feet away from me. It was. <laughs> In the water floating, do I look wet? <laughs> you know. But to your point, the next few days, they came to my home and they were just asking questions, you know, and it was yeah. unsettling at first, you know, because how about the victim? You know, what's happening there? You know, and I mean, it turned out to be a suicide and all of that, but it was harrowing momentarily yeah. because this is a life. This isn't, you know, I left my shoe outside. This is a life that's, you know, and it's, it took a few days, but there was a mental yeah. um, dimension to it. But that was interesting. So, yeah. Now, I've always been curious, you know, <laughs> what's the earliest gift you remember receiving? as a kid? Um, my first bicycle. What make and model was it? Oh, it was, I think it was a Schwinn. It was a long time ago. Um, and it was kind of, uh, it was small. Obviously I was young. I don't remember much more about it. Just there was a shiny bike under the Christmas tree one year. So were you one of those kids who would wake up in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve just to see the gifts and then pretend to be surprised the next morning? Wait a minute. Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> well, what Christian doesn't, right? <laughs> I feel sorry for the Jewish people. Although mixed marriages, you know they celebrate both. So uh, the kids get it. Why not? Any chance to party, right? Yeah. So what? So what was your favorite cartoon character when you were a kid? Um, cartoon character? Oh, I don't know. The Roadrunner? I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't really. I did watch cartoons as any kid did in, in the fifties, but because that's when I was a kid was in the fifties. So. Um, that's all I can tell you. I don't. I, I can see. Well, I can relate with the Roadrunner because I mean, you have you know had quite the experiences always on the go. So that that kind of makes sense. Now, going back to your sailing experience, you know, um, you once mentioned you left your boat in Bermuda, your sailboat. Mm. Do you miss it? <laughs> Well, I didn't, I didn't leave it in Bermuda. It was when we, when the mass came down, um, we left the boat floating because the uh, container ship could save lives, but they couldn't uh, save property. 
you know, their insurance would pay for anything that would happen when they were trying to rescue us. But if they tried to uh, take the boat in tow or put it on their top of their uh, containers or something uh, and something, somebody got hurt, their insurance wouldn't be covering it. So they wouldn't touch the boat and it floated around Bermuda to the south side and got towed in. By that time, though, the insurance company owned it. So, um, and it's, uh, it, it operated as a party boat without a mast in Bermuda's Harbor for uh, cruise ship people uh, until about, uh, actually till about 12 years ago when a retired policeman bought it and refurbished the whole thing. And it was, I've seen pictures, it's, it's prettier today than it was when I bought it brand new. Well, I think it's prettier today because as a sailor, you actually sail your boat. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. You just don't dock it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, which I know you also are, you know, you participate and you really enjoy the America's Cup um, and you golf and you do, you know, I mean, you're very active, that's for sure. Now, on the America's Cup, what would you say about the current state of affairs? Um, I, you know, I guess the most exciting America's Cup, actually, that I think about is the one in San Francisco when we came from, you know, nine down to win 10 or 11 to whatever. Um, that was an exciting race. I'm not wearing the shirt from that, but that was a very exciting shirt, uh, race, um, but I probably enjoyed as much uh, being in the Hudson River, working the uh, prelims, uh, the uh, what the Louis Vuitton uh, series um, in the Hudson River on a essentially a chase boat, pushing pushing boats out of the viewer boats, uh, spectator boats out of the racing field, because in a four knot current coming down the Hudson River, they were always floating down into the uh, into the race course, and you had to push them back out. Uh, and being on the water with those things zipping by was was uh, a lot of fun. You know, the one time um, I attended those, <laughs> you know, you know, it's it's all inspiring. You see an entire armada, just yeah, as far as the eyes can see. Well, that would be, yeah, well, that wouldn't be the America's Cup. That that would be one of the other big races like uh, the Vineyard Race or the Ida Lewis Race up in the Rhode Island area uh, where you've got 100 or 125 boats taking off. I mean, that is spectacular. I've been in those races. Um, but in the, in the, uh, in the uh, America's Cup, it's, it's, it's definitely a lot about the technology and uh the big money i mean it is it's just big money that goes into those things and the whittling down from uh a dozen maybe entrants or less to you know the two that end up going head to head uh but that's so do you think technology and money has made it cost prohibitive you know for certain sports for example the america's cup Think about even golf, because I know you're an avid golfer. You know, certain sports have just become, you know, a combination of technology and money has just limited, you know, broad, broader participation. Um, yeah, I actually, I think of skiing in that manner. Uh, I don't ski anymore. I've made a conscious decision uh, <laughs> after coming out of a half pipe and every bone in my body said, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. You're getting too old for that. Um but the cost of, uh, you know, when we used to pay, what, 20 bucks or something like that for a full day skiing, and now it's 100 something or whatever, I, I, you know, I've lost track of it, actually. So, yeah, there's a cost pro, pro, prohibition uh, based on money, uh, you know, the cost being so high for some sports. But you're probably more referring to uh, how much money is involved in sports. In, in a, like in a football game, which drives me uh, actually crazy, I always record things like football games 
uh, because there's however many minutes of actual time, and then there's four times that of in-your-face advertisements. I went to a hockey game, uh, the, the Golden, the the Black Knights, Golden Knights, the Black Knights, I guess, in Vegas, and they played the Rangers, and um, I couldn't. I couldn't handle the volume level. Uh, I had my fingers in my ears for all of the time, except for when they were playing hockey. Wow. On a scale of, of one to 10, the volume of the announcer and the music uh, was typically 10 to 12, just ear shattering. When, when, uh, when the players would start to play, they'd stop that. And the volume level on a scale of one to ten was, you know, the the stadium or the arena, uh, T-Mobile Arena, I guess it is in Vegas. Um, it, the level probably was around the two, you know, with all the people talking and watching the game and everything. When they do a shot on goal, it was got up to a five, and if they scored a goal, maybe it was a seven or an eight, but never as loud as when. The announcers came on and they played music and did all these crazy non-hockey things uh, to fill in time. So I, I a lot has been lost to promoters and promotions and the glitz and which is all related to the the technology ability that is available to the producers today. So so do you think artificial intelligence is a threat to humanity or do you think it's more of a benefit than a threat? I think it's probably more of a benefit than a, a real threat um, for some time to come. You, you never know. I mean, uh, switch could get flipped somewhere and it could be a real problem but um i think there's a lot of good associated with artificial intelligence and today. and do you th in, in that spirit then do you think the advent the access that technology has brought relative to relative to its use right has do you think it's good for Faith, and I don't mean that in a hyper-religious sense. I mean, I, I think, do you do you do you believe a combination of artificial intelligence and the want use the, the the scaled use of technology has further divided people? It's created more faithless humans, or do you think it's somehow bridging the gap? Because people trust technology today more than they do their fellow humans. That's a, that's a real. I mean, that's a real interesting question because the, the there's several gaps. One gap is those who are luddites or don't have the education uh, and don't know how to use technology. There's a whole mass of people that fall into that sort of category, and there's a chasm between them and those that know how to use technology. And things like AI and, and uh, expert systems, uh, you know, they expect and it doesn't bother them. It's way beyond those, the mass of people who just don't understand that. They may have a phone, but they don't really have any concept of how it works or, um, yeah, how, how it works and really technology at all. So there's a, there's a big gap there. And that's education. I mean, think all these things come down to education in the first place. Uh, we don't really have good social education as to, you know, um, how to keep a checkbook online now, but how to keep a checkbook, uh, how to, uh, you know, live somewhere within your means uh, financially, um, something about economics. I don't think uh, young people get enough of that in school practical you know here's here's stuff you need to know for your life there's got to be one course every semester in high school on that
Yeah, and that's very dangerous. Which leads me to, you know, as I'm closing this out now, what did you, you, in your earliest memory as a young man, what did you want to be when you grew, when you were a young man? What was your ambition? Uh, to build and uh, run my own company and be a millionaire. <laughs> which was that? Which before? I succeeded in doing when I was thirty. So. Interesting. So, what was your first car? Um, a fifty-five Desoto. I believe it's a fifty-five Desoto with a on the dashboard lever for the gears. Drive it's an automatic drive down to neutral and reverse. That is interesting. How long did you have it for? Ooh. Probably only uh, a year. It was in, I was like 16 in high school. Um, I had my own business uh, painting houses so I could afford it, I guess. But um, better question is what was my best car was the green machine. I bought it. It was a 55 Ford and it was dark green. I bought it for $7.50 from a neighbor who was just sitting by their garage and... Um, she had no use for it. I said, I'll buy it. And she said, how much you got? And I said, $7.50. I'm making that part up. But I know it was $7.50. And um, I used that car through college and into the Navy for the first year in the Navy and probably put twenty to 25,000 miles on it before it blew up on my way down to my ship in Little Creek, Virginia one time. And I so just, you went I, from... From turf to surf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I gave and I, I turned the car over to the tow truck driver. I said, look, it's good tires on here. I think you can get something out of it. I don't want to pay you for this. Why don't you keep the car? And I got a bus or something down to the ship. That's crazy. Wow. Anyway. So finally, what would you want people, friends, family, associates, mentees, advisees to remember you. What do you want to remember about you? Well, when I get older and I need to think about such things, I'll let you know. I'm not, I'm not checking out soon as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I would like, I would like this people to say he was a good, a good man, good family man. And, a. uh, uh, ethical businessman. That is awesome. Bob, thank you so much, you know, for being on here and plenty of insights. Um, and I really look forward to having a follow on session in the very near future. All right. Good talking with you as usual. Have a good afternoon. Bye.